the fourth in a teaching I've entitled, Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And this morning we're going to be speaking about turning the other cheek. And so we'll give the musicians time to get off the stage and back in the sanctuary so they don't miss anything. <clears throat> because they're going to need this. But we've been talking about things that we wish Jesus hadn't said. Reminding ourselves this morning that what has been commonly called the hard sayings of Jesus are not meant just to be optional, nice thoughts. Here's something you can consider if you feel like doing this. But, but these are things that are sometimes that are difficult, maybe to understand exactly what he meant. But most times they're just really kind of difficult to apply because everything within us and everything in our culture usually says just to go the other way, to do what is good for you, your rights, what you feel like, your limitations. And so many times in the body of Christ and in the workplace and everyday situations, the Lord does not get a chance, as he says in Isaiah, to really make his presence known because his people who are his presence in everyday life and in the marketplace don't step out of the way and say, Lord, in this situation, would you just open the heavens and would you come down? Would you just do what I can't do? Would you give me grace to do what I know I ought to do? And to give the Lord an opportunity to break through and to show himself and to begin to touch lives. And really that's what this weekend is about, the long weekend of September. And again, I encourage you, if you're available, I know it's a long weekend, you might have plans, but if you're in town, <clears throat> oh, what odds? If you've got plans, change them. But uh, especially if you're in town, then uh, I really encourage you to participate because what we really are looking at is, is how can we step outside of our comfort zone of what we, I mean, we all love the Lord and we all want to please the Lord and be used by Him, but, but really begin to experience the Lord meeting us in miraculous ways by us just being willing to, to uh, be used by Him in just everyday scenarios. It may be in the street ministry, it could be at your office place around the water cooler, it could be in your home, unbelieving family members, whatever it may be, uh, but I just believe the Lord wants to do that. You know, I hear people say a lot today, that the church is no longer relevant. <clears throat> and I disagree with that. I believe the church is no longer relevant in the sense that most people who don't know Christ just drive by churches and they're just buildings. I mean, they're no more going to come into here than I'm going to walk into a mosque or the Mormon church or Jehovah Witness, whatever. It's just, it's just not relevant to me. It's not part of my life. It's not part of my understanding, my convictions. And so in that sense, the church is irrelevant. But the church is very much relevant in the sense that we are the presence of Jesus. And so wherever we go, uh, there are people who maybe never walk into a church door, but they can experience a touch of God. They can experience the presence of the Lord um, through you if you're willing to step out and to be involved in that. Do I see Pastor Troy there? Oh, I do. Bless you, Pastor Troy. Good to see you this morning. Um, <clears throat> from Booktush, I guess you're on vacation, or maybe you just got sick and tired and didn't feel like going to church this morning, so you came to visit us. Pastor Troy Match, it's a dear brother in the Lord and pastor in, in uh, Booktush. <clears throat> and so this morning we, t we were talking about uh, things that I wish Jesus hadn't said. Some of the hard sayings of Jesus, and this week really gets uh, no easier. But I want to talk about this idea of turning the other cheek, and probably in a more practical way today than I usually do on Sundays. Um, very practical ways of what it really means to impact the life of somebody around us by applying this teaching into our lives. And, and how do we do this? And are there limitations? Are, are there parameters in which we live this word out? And how does the Lord intend us to affect people around us? Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. Jesus said this, You have heard the law that says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say... 
Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, then offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Or another scripture says, to those who are in need. So to put this in context, Jesus begins with these words. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. And then he goes on to quote an Old Testament scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now to better understand the purpose of this law or this saying, we need to understand what was the law of the land, you might say, before God put this into place. And basically what was happening in the days before God brought any semblance of his word or any semblance of order was people basically lived by what you might call a world ethic. And a world ethic was an ethic of unlimited revenge. What that meant was this. If you, by accident or on purpose, let's say killed my brother, then people understood that I have a right to kill your brother. But... If I happen to be in a position of power or I have more resources than you do, I may kill your entire family. I may even wipe out your entire village. And so the world ethic was basically revenge. Whatever you can exact in revenge, it's your right if something's been done wrong to you. Well, it's in this context the Word of God comes and brings what we might call a legal ethic to replace this world ethic. And the legal ethic is one of limited punishment. So instead of unlimited revenge, God says, okay, if there's been an injustice done, there's a need for limited punishment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or basically like for like. Now, this law, it's important to understand, was given to those who rule. It was given to the court system, to those who were chosen to lead the people. This was not meant to be given to an individual person. This was not a law that was given to say to you, if someone does something wrong for you, to you, then you can get back at them. Eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. Because God recognizes that you're really the worst one to mete out justice for something that's been done to you. Because you tend to see it as a lot more grievous offense because it's been done to you. So the law is given to those who rule over you so in the wisdom of their counsel, in the wisdom of them being separated from all the emotion and all that goes on in that kind of situation, they're able to mete out a just punishment to the one who has done you wrong. If you do it yourself, what's going to happen? It's going to be revenge, and you're probably bound to go further than what was done to you. Is that not right? You just tend to lash out, and it's not quite just what you end up doing. So it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You may remember the old saying, tit for tat, butter for fat, you kill my dog, I kill your cat. You ever hear that? That's called justice. Well, it's not real justice because if you kill my dog, like a dog's worth 100 cats. So it's not quite, you know, quite balanced there, but you may be familiar with that saying. But the point is this. An eye for an eye is not condoning revenge. An eye for an eye is actually God's way of limiting revenge. It's a way of God allowing for a just response to an injustice that's been done against you while restraining that person who may be hot-headed and just lash out and actually inflict more injury than they had received. So when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus was not abolishing that law. He wasn't saying that, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. He's saying, you got to understand, this was not something God gave for you personally to carry out. 
This is for the court system. And that's why sometimes people will use that scripture and say, well, you know, if we're going to live the way that Jesus did, then there really shouldn't be severe punishment for crimes or there shouldn't be capital punishment or we shouldn't go to war, whatever, whatever the argument may be. But I want us to understand in the scripture, Jesus is actually supporting punishment for the criminal in order to protect those who are innocent. In Romans 13, Paul says this, For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Does that make sense? You're driving down the highway, going the speed limit, you see a police car off to the side, what do you do? You just keep driving and enjoy your ride because you know you're going the speed limit, right? What happens if you're going over the speed limit? You know, whoever's sleeping in the car, they're jerked awake, and then when you pass the police car, you're looking in the rearview mirror to see if they're moving or if the lights go on, right? Strikes fear, why? Because you're doing something wrong. That's what Paul says, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have to worry about it. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So in other words, for the sake of peace, for the sake of, of order in society, we must uphold the law and insist that others do the same. Because as long as there is human sinfulness in our society, there must be a means to restrain that evil. There must be a means to, be, to punish that evil as a deterrent. And so Jesus isn't criticizing the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is criticizing the application by individuals who use that for their own personal revenge. That's what he wanted to remove us from. He wants to take us out of the equation of us settling the debt and learn to leave that with God who knows how to do that, and then he gives us a higher principle. And then Jesus goes on uh, to show how we are to respond to these personal attacks or personal aggression, and he gives us four examples. <clears throat> and I hope these are things, as we go walk it through this morning, that you can think of people in your, in your, in your, in your uh, relationships, in your work, in your home, wherever it may be, that the Lord can give you some principles here as you move and minister as his presence wherever you may be. One example Jesus gives, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. In the culture that day, of course, and much like today, but in that day, it was a great insult if someone slapped you in the face in public. Even worse, if they turned their hand and slapped you with the back of their hand. Jesus says, if somebody does that to you, slaps you, off them the other side as well. And we'll get to why in just a moment. Then he says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, some of you may not be a big deal. Somebody sues your shirt, you get a closet full of clothes, right? But in, in, in his day, basically, the average man had two shirts. He had one that he wore, obviously, that day, one that was on the line for the next day. But he only had one coat. And a coat was very important because a coat wasn't just to wear during the day. It could also be used as a blanket at night. In fact, there were laws put in place that if you do, did see sue somebody, you did seesaw sue somebody, for their coat, uh, you had to give it back at night because they needed it at night. And so for Jesus to say, if you lose your shirt, give the coat as well, was uh, a pretty shocking thing to say. Number three, he says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Now, most of us realize that the Jews at that time, they were occupied by the Roman, Roman power, Roman empire. And so just like any subjugated people, you weren't too happy to be under the rule of somebody else. But to make matters worse, you had the constant reminder because you had soldiers everywhere. 
Now, one of the good things that Rome did bring to uh, the conquered lands is they brought very modernized and easy-to-travel routes, highways, roads, those kind of things. And what they instituted as well along the highways were mile markers. We have a picture of one here. About every mile, about every 5,000 feet, um, 5,280 for us, but about 5,000 feet, they would have these mile markers. And in that day, a Roman soldier who could be walking for many miles from one place to the next, carrying a lot of heavy gear, hot sun, you can imagine they're in the Middle East, he was able to take somebody, conscript somebody off the side of the road who's walking along this direction or that direction. He was able to take them and say, hey, carry my bag. And when he said that, the person knew that by law, they had to carry that bag for a mile. Now, you know, to carry that bag for one thing was probably an inconvenience because you probably didn't like the soldier, didn't want to help them out anyway. You wish they weren't even here. So you're walking along carrying this bag, probably muttering something under your breath, you know, really unhappy. Or you may be going the other way. And he's saying, no, I'm going this way, carry it for a mile. You've got to walk a whole mile, and when you're done, walk all the way back to go where you're going. And so probably most times when somebody had to carry the bag, they would carry the bag for the, for the mandatory mile, and when they reached the mile marker, that one mile period, or 5,000 steps, however they measured, they would just drop the bag, say, see you later. And on they'd go, because they didn't want to do that. Jesus says, when a Roman soldier asks you to carry his bag, you walk along for that mile. And when the mile is finished, and the soldier may be counted as well, and he's just waiting for you to drop that bag, instead you look up to him and you say, hey, listen, I'd be glad to go another mile with you. That soldier is going to be shocked by your response, by your attitude, and begin to see that there's something different about you as a follower of Christ. Then he says, give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow or those who have need. This is really important. We all know people or situations where people ask for help. And you wonder sometimes as a Christian, well, do I help? How much do I help? What's, what's the parameters? What does God expect of me? Well, one of the things I've kind of come to terms with in my own life when it comes to money, when it comes to lending, when it comes to helping somebody is simply this. I never lend to somebody what I'm not willing to give away. I just, you know, for me, you lend it, and there's nothing wrong with having guidelines. They say, hey, I'll pay you back in a couple of weeks or over the course of the year. You can set that up. But to me, once you release that money, you have to be willing to say for the sake of conflict, for the sake of relationship, you know what? They're planning to pay it back, but if they don't, they don't. I'm just releasing this, and I'm leaving that with the Lord. So we basically have three systems at play here. We have a world system with unlimited revenge. We have God's legal system that provides limited punishment. And then we have Jesus' arrangement that has to do with generosity. But I want us to understand this morning, it has to do with limited generosity. Limited generosity. And you say, well, what do you mean by limited generosity? Well, within the generosity that we're expected to show to other people, to stand out to make a difference, there are some parameters. And one of them is this. The true need of the person. When it comes to meeting someone's need, I believe what the Lord is teaching us is that he doesn't always say how much we are to lend, but only that you are not to turn away the person who has need. In other words, you are trying to discern if there is true need. And if there is, then trust that God has brought that person across your path in order that you might minister, that you might do something to help them. You know, sometimes we worry, am I the only one? When, when there's a need that comes up or somebody asks you for something, Sometimes my first thought is, I don't want to be taken advantage of. You ever feel that way? Like, I don't mind helping, but I just don't want to be taken advantage of. Well, that's an important thing. 
uh, in some way, but that's not the real danger. I think the greater danger is that you not help at all. That's even worse than being taken advantage of. The Lord says if there is true need, you need to get involved. Now, I don't believe the Lord is saying that you need to give whatever a person is asking. But I think what he is implying is that in order to determine what the real need is, it doesn't mean you have to be nosy and prying, but to determine what the real need is, you've got to actually take some time to know the person. You've got to take the time to actually try to ascertain what is going on in their life. And again, it's not for the purpose of being nosy, but I think that along with actually helping somebody, it's actually probably even more appreciated by that person when you take time, not just to, not just to cut a check, but you actually take time to, to find out what's going on in your life. You know, maybe kind of what brought you to this point. In other words, what you're saying is, let's try to find a, a solution to this. So it's not just giving a fish, it's teaching how to fish. You may give a fish to begin with, but you're kind of getting more involved in the person's life. So maybe along with helping that need at the time, you're also saying, hey, I care enough that I want you to make sure you don't stay in need. Is there something else we can be doing here that will really help to put you back on track, to really pick you back up? Now, going back to Jesus' first example, to apply this principle of, of the true need of the person, if somebody was to physically or verbally strike you, what do you do? Well, what's human nature and what people tend to do in our culture is you just strike back. I think what Jesus is saying when he's talking about finding the true need is this. If a person lashes out at you, someone in the office has kind of rubbed you the wrong way or they just say things about you or whatever the scenario may be, what would happen if you were to take time to try to figure out why they're lashing out at you? If there's just something about them, there's a sharp edge, you know, they got a, they got a sharp tongue or whatever. Well, I've always asked myself this question. What is broken in that person that creates these sharp edges? Why is it? I mean, I, we, I used to do a divorce recovery seminar many years ago, and, and one of the things we would teach people is simply this, that hurt people hurt people. That's human nature. If you're hurt, you tend to live and relate out of that hurt, and oftentimes you hurt other people because of your own hurt and your own brokenness. So what would happen if you took time to find out why they lashed at you instead of just retaliating? In fact, if you do that, and it's been your habit to do that, what you've probably discovered, as the Scripture says, you, you make an enemy your friend. Someone who maybe didn't like you, they look at you in a new way. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this. I think these are interesting guidelines. He says, brothers and sisters, we urge you, three categories, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. I think when it comes to meeting need, identifying true need, so you may speak to an individual who may know of a certain need and you know it's a true need, but Paul goes a step further and he says within the realm of meeting that true need, Here's three more categories. Number one, if the person is lazy, don't help them. That's what he's saying. Another translation says that the person is unruly. What does he mean by lazy, unruly? Basically, if the person is undisciplined. If they show by their conduct, by their conversation, that you're just pouring good money after bad, you're just pouring into a deep hole kind of thing, that they don't have the discipline themselves to actually take what you are doing to help, to use it as a stepping stone toward improvement. He says, there's nothing going to be able to do about that. So he says, don't help the lazy. Don't you like hearing that in church? We're supposed to love everybody. I've found something in ministry. It sounds like you're uncaring sometimes, 
but you can actually waste a lot of time and energy and money trying to help someone who doesn't want to be helped, and it only drains you, but oftentimes distracts you from true need. And it can actually begin to make you cynical so that when true need comes, your thought is, I'm not getting burned again. I can remember Dave early in ministry, and I don't know if you're as saintly as I was back then. You're probably more holy than I was. But I can remember back early in ministry when I'd be around some pastors who'd been in ministry for 25, 30 years. And it's not that they were cynical. They were very practical. But, but they would kind of blow off certain needs, and I'd, just, I'd be mortified. Like, you're a pastor. You're supposed to love these people unconditionally and do everything you can. But see, they've been in ministry long enough to discern what was true need. They've been around long enough to discern whether or not that person really had the discipline to actually take advantage of the help and move on, or whether that person has been stuck that way for 20 years. So what to me seemed so callous was actually wisdom on their part, because I'd also see them meet needs in other ways for people who actually you could help. That's the second thing Paul says. Uh, for those, there are others who are timid. The other translation says faint-hearted. And again, he says you don't give them handouts. If somebody is timid, what do you need to do? You need to encourage them. You need to come around them and say, hey, listen, you can do this. You need to try to ascertain, okay, here's where things are right now. Because a lot of times, if a person is faint-hearted or timid, it's somebody who may be discouraged. And it's not that they can't get on their feet. It's not that they can't, they don't have the resources to do what they need to do. But they're just discouraged or depressed or overwhelmed. And you can come along and you can encourage them. You don't have to pour a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of resources into that person. But you can encourage them and be around to help them find a solution. Because when they begin to find a solution, you also build up their confidence, get them back on track. But then he says, it's only the weak that you help, those who can help themselves. And in each case, he says, be patient. Don't be condemning, be patient. And so the point I'm making this morning is that Jesus brings into perspective for us a generosity, but it's also a limited generosity that's applied differently in different situations. It's limited by true need. It's also limited by our resources. The Lord expects us to use our resources to help others we do determine true need, but our resources can also be limited. For example, Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what are you to do? You're to offer them the other cheek. You're limited. You've only got two cheeks on the face, right? I know what you're thinking. Okay? So you turn the other cheek. You turn the other cheek. He didn't say, give them a baseball bat and tell them to go to town. You see, there's, you're limited by the resources that you have available to you. I really think that one of the things Jesus is saying here, which is so important for us in our culture as the people of God, the presence of Christ, he says, listen, don't get into fighting fire with fire. Proverbs 15, we know it well. A gentle answer, a gentle answer does what? Deflects anger. But harsh words make tempers flare. What I think Jesus is saying this, and you can think of somebody or a situation that you can probably apply this to today or when you get back to work on Tuesday. Somebody slaps you in the cheek. What is Jesus saying? I want you to take it. I want you to stand there and say, would you like to hit me again on the other side? Not to antagonize. And, and you know, if I was to say that I'm crossing my finger that they say no. Because Jesus understands something. If you retaliate, rather than just being hit once and then maybe a second time, if you retaliate, what happens? You're going to get hit a second time and retaliate. Hit a third time, retaliate, hit a fourth time. You see what happens? It just goes on and on. And even if you leave each other's company, what happens? The gossip goes on, the bad words go on, all that kind of stuff. The ripple effect goes on and on. Jesus is saying, if you will take it rather than retaliating, you have an opportunity to diffuse the situation right away. 
Because what, how, what would you think you'd feel like if you smacked somebody and instead of them clenching their fist at you, they just say, would you like to hit me again? You know, not in a kind of snark, you know, want to hit me again? You know, but you know what I mean? It just sincerely, if it makes you feel better, you can hit me again. And sincerely meant that. How would you feel? You'd feel like an idiot. You'd kind of go, and you'd probably walk away. Why? Because regardless of what you show on the outside, inwardly you realize you've been an idiot. You did the wrong thing. You were the aggressor. You went too far, but the situation gets stopped right there. And again, you might even have an opportunity to win a friend. Mahatma Gandhi was the one who said, you can live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but when all is said and done, what do you get? Everybody is blind and toothless. Right? And that's true. And so Jesus' way works a whole lot better. And yet there is a reasonable limitation. Jesus said this, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Aren't you glad he didn't say, give your pants and your socks and your underwear? I mean, really. He says, there's a limitation. They want your shirt, give them your coat. Somebody asked you to walk a mile, he didn't say walk 50. He said, look, just be willing to give them an extra mile. And there's a reason for this we'll see in just a moment as we come to a close. There's a reasonable limitation. And the third limitation is this, the power of the second mile. This is where I really believe our witness stands out as the presence of Christ. This is really where we have an opportunity to speak into someone's life, to show whether they drive by churches every Sunday or every day of the week and don't notice, they begin to see that there is a church in our world and in our city. What is the power of the second mile? It is this. The question is this. What is enough to get the person's attention to see that you are generous because God is generous to you. That's really what the Lord, is, I believe, is calling us to do. He's not putting limitations on us in the sense that, you know, you've got to go way overboard. He's just saying, listen, just understand this. In any given situation, what would God do, have you do that's just enough for them to see that there's something different about you? That there's a different way that you live and operate. Maybe something that will convict them, but also will make them curious about this faith that you have. The law tells you to go the first mile. Love says to go the second mile. To the Philippians, Paul said, let your gentleness be evident to all. Uh, the root of that word gentleness means to go beyond justice or basically to go beyond what is fair. And this is where I really think we as the people of God can stand out oftentimes in everyday situations is that when, when something happens, so often our society says you respond by what you think is fair. Or, or, or whether somebody has transgressed your rights. Isn't that the way it works? If something happens to us, the first thought is, what about my rights? Or this is not fair. I don't know how many times I've talked to believers, and I can fall in this trap as well, and when you really boil down their argument, what they're saying is, it's not fair. You know, we can explain it ten ways till Sunday, but it boils down to the fact I'm offended because I've been wronged, and it's not fair. What do we do with that? The Bible doesn't say that fairness or our rights should determine the extent of our generosity. Neither should what we perceive to be the merits of the person. Yes, we identify true need and so on, but we should never stereotype people, and because you're a certain social class or a certain race, whatever the case may be, that we, we say, well, based on your merits, no, that's not how we determine whether or not to help. The only critical factor, Jesus says, is their true need and the power of the second mile. One commentator once said that when a Christian has done his duty, he is half done. I like that. When he's done his duty, he's half done. Look at Romans chapter 12. 
Paul says, never pay back evil with more evil. What's he saying? When you get slapped, don't slap back. Evil for more evil. That's all that is. It's the same spirit. It's going to keep going around. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now, when you read that verse, you're tempted to think, God just can't wait to smack someone, you know, on your behalf. That's not what he's saying. God takes no pleasure in the punishment or the death of the wicked. It's not that. What God is saying is, listen, I have given you the option and by the Holy Spirit the ability to stay out of the conflict and to trust me. Don't get involved in that economy, tit for tat. Don't get involved in that. Remove yourself from that. Leave that with me in my time. I'll take care of that if need be. You keep your spirit sweet. You always stay in a posture to be a channel for my presence, to be different in that situation, to stand out and let your light shine. He says, instead, if your enemies are hungry, notice he says enemies, okay, this is serious. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. See, you get the lack, you know, and, and by the way, the Lord is not saying, you know, you, you know, you get to get at them. He's not saying that. He's talking about that sense of, of that shame. I smack you. You do nothing back. What happens? I realize I'm wrong. I feel awkward. I feel, okay, maybe there's something wrong. We need to talk, whatever the case may be. And this is key. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil. In every situation, conquer evil. How? Read it with me. By doing good. Doing what is good. And then Paul reinforces the fact, I believe, that Jesus, he's not advocating some kind of unlimited acquiescence, but he has given us a very new and powerful strategy to conquer evil. He says, don't let evil get hold of you so you respond in the same spirit, but overcome that evil with good. Not just an evil person. Overcome the evil spirit of our culture that drives that person to act a certain way, oftentimes the only way they know, because that's how culture works, Overcome that evil spirit that has that person bound by doing good. That God can set them free. That they can experience a new way of life. Don't allow that person to bring you down to their level, but take the high road and show them there's a better way to live. You might say, well, yeah, but Paul, that sounds great from the pulpit, but does that really work in the real world? Let me ask you this morning, how many have found that works? Anybody do that? Co-workers, all that stuff? It really works. It worked for Jesus, it worked for Gandhi, it worked for Martin Luther King, it works for countless believers down through the ages who chose the way of non-aggression. But the greater question is this. Is it worth the second slap in order that somebody might come to know Christ? To me, that's the real question. It's not my rights, it's not my fairness. The question is, is it really worth going the extra mile so that, or, or doing enough so that the person sees there's something different about me that might begin a journey in their own faith walk that they don't have to die without Christ for eternity? Is it worth it? And I really think it's what the Lord is getting that. As I'm moving you out of this world system of revenge. I'm even asking you to go beyond the law that God put in place that brings limited punishment. I'm asking you to move to a place of generosity and grace. 
And even that has some limitations. There's wisdom in moving in that, but it's a different way that actually brings release in people who would be aggressive toward you. I believe it really works in the real world. In fact, you know what? It worked in your world. Let me close with this scripture. And as you all look at your watches and can't believe it's only been a half hour, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Peter says, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. Okay, so don't live like the devil and then cry out to God when you get your licks. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, then God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Jesus never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he's... Can you imagine being Jesus? I mean, think about this. You know, you do something against me, and I'm thinking, I've got power to turn you into a frog. I can just zap you right now if I want to. I mean, you think it's hard for us to resist sometimes. Imagine when you have all power, and a person is doing something, he says, Jesus is our example. He has all that power. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted, didn't threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and we can live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. What Jesus did, he did for you and me. Not just to give us some ethereal belief system that works well on paper. He says, I've given you an example to show you the kind of life a spirit-filled person can live. And I'm taking over this whole world spirit and economy that just brings death, brings arguments, brings division, brings hurt. I'm giving you the opportunity to step outside of that. I'm giving you an opportunity to die to that whole system in order that you might experience real life that comes from living the way that is right, from talking the way that is right, relating to people the way that is right. That might seem like a small thing to you, but it is huge in the eyes of people who don't know that way and don't see that operation. It absolutely blows them away. Peter says that Jesus did more than just turn the other cheek. He allowed every single drop of his blood to be shed for those who were aggressive toward him. He left the revenge with God. And here's the amazing thing even to the point on the cross of saying, Father, please forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. Yes, it works in the real world. It works in the real world. I'm going to ask the musicians to join me. You know, you have to be led by the Holy Spirit to know what to do and how much to do in any given situation. But what the Lord is calling us to is a relationship with Him. And this, this is really the key. It's not just a, another lofty idea. It's not just a nice truth, a nice concept, if it could really work. The Lord says, this works by having a relationship with me. This works by day by day bringing your life into alignment with my word and my spirit and beginning to live this way and experience the joy and the freedom that comes in living counter to our culture. It's different. It's, it's far beyond the ethic of our world. It exceeds the requirements of our law. Its only measure is this. What in this situation is right for this person and what will bring glory to God? Those are our two questions. It's not my rights. 
It's not the fairness. It's, Lord, in this given situation, you brought this person, this situation across my path. I may even know them, but something has flared up. Lord, I'm an instrument of your peace. I'm the presence of Jesus in this place. Lord, I don't like this, but what would you do in this situation? I'm the only Jesus they may see. How do, I, you, how do you use me to maybe heal some of the brokenness that brings that harshness or that sharp edge in this given situation? Maybe I'm the only person who would actually give them some compassion. I remember once, many years ago, when we lived in Newfoundland, I'm closed with this story, it just came to my mind, but Vanessa worked in a workplace with four other ladies, a beautiful gift shop, kind of a high-end gift shop, very classy place, and the ladies were all kind of cultured, classy ladies. And uh, there's this one lady who was having a hard time in her marriage. And uh, I can't remember exactly what it was all about, but she was basically ready to give him the ultimatum and kick him out you know, in the marriage. And... Um, and the other ladies, none of them knew the Lord. Vanessa was the only Christian there. All the other ladies said what everybody always says. Yeah, get rid of the bum. You deserve better. You've got your rights. You know what I'm saying? That's all you hear around the water cooler. Yeah, get out. You know, you're better off, ball and chain, whatever. You know, you deserve better. And I remember Vanessa, when she, when she came to Vanessa, the topic came up. Vanessa, Vanessa said this, and I just paraphrased, but you know you can do that. But have you ever thought of maybe just going home and talking to him? thought of just sitting down and you know rather than being accused and just share what you're feeling and, and and hear his side you know very practical wisdom but that's totally radical in the workplace totally radical in the world spirit that says you don't only if somebody hurts you you don't only get your revenge you take it to them and you get even more and the problem is after you've both gone your way you're both blind and toothless so you can do that and that's what the lady did she went home and she actually had a conversation with her husband. Didn't go in the spirit of the world like all the other ladies were saying. She went in the spirit that Vanessa had told her about, and they talked. And they stayed together. And I don't remember all the details, but, but just a simple situation like that. And so when things happen to us, and things come our way, can I encourage you this week, wherever situation it may be, rather than first thinking of yourself, would you think, Lord, why have you brought this person across my path? Why has this flared up? If it's something you've done wrong, well, then there's obviously some answer there. But even then, you can speak back in a good way. But if you're wrongly accused, if you're offended, if someone's aggressive toward you, would you just say, well, Lord, help me to be the presence of Jesus. Help me to be that quiet word, that word of love, of affirmation, that word of, or just that temperament that would have some compassion and take time to see what's going on and and maybe actually make a difference in that person's of life. Because that person probably drives by 100 churches in the course of the week. But they actually can see the church. They can see the presence of Jesus on that assembly line, in that workplace, in the home, on the street, wherever it may be. And they will certainly be drawn to that and certainly find that relevant. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to ask those on our ministry team. I know some are away, but we have a few folks here. Some of our elders are here. You can come as well. We just want to give you opportunity this morning. If you want to receive prayer for anything before you leave, you're, you're welcome to come up front, and these folks will be glad to pray with you. So I'm going to ask the ministry team just to come, even as I speak now. As we bow our head, if you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, you don't know what it is to live his way, we always say here that God's word is not a book of rules. It's a book of truths. And these truths bring light into your life and they help you to live in freedom and to bring freedom to relationships that matter to you. And the Lord is here this morning to offer you life. 
And all he asks that you do is that you ask him for forgiveness for living life your own way and to acknowledge that you need him, that you need a savior to say, Lord, I, I sense your presence this morning, but I don't know God and I want to know him. Jesus is the way to know God the Father, to bring you back to him. And he simply asks you to open your heart and to say, Jesus, please forgive me for my sin and live in life on my terms. I invite you into my life. Wash me clean. Be my Lord. Show me how to live. I want to live for you. If that's your heart desire, you just pray that simple prayer this morning. And the Lord says by faith, he washes away your sin and you become a child of God. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm just going to close this in prayer. And if you pray that prayer this morning, you desire to open your heart to the Lord, I invite you to come. Maybe you just come along the, the front here in the middle. Rhonda, why don't you come, Deborah, if you wouldn't mind. These ladies, these folks, be glad to pray with you this morning. But if you have another need in your heart this morning, it could be physical, need for healing, it could be anything, we want to give you opportunity to come and receive prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your precious presence this morning. I thank you for the freedom in worship. I thank you, Lord, for your people who are here today. And I pray, Lord God, for each one of us as we move through this week, they would be so conscious that we are your presence wherever we go. And I pray, oh God, in every given situation, may first come to mind how we may be like you and walk in your steps and do what you would do in a given situation that people might actually see that the church has come to their office, has come to the street, has come to wherever that place of need may be. I thank you for the wonderful opportunity we have experience the presence of God moving through our lives to touch others. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, this morning who received you for the first time. I pray, Lord, for grace and courage even just to remain, Lord, to receive prayer, to understand more how to walk with you. We thank you for this beautiful day, the gift it is to us. We give it back to you. And we pray today that we will live it for your glory. In Jesus' name.